This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the It's All About Experience Management podcast, where guests from around the world share with you strategies and easy-to-implement ideas for improving the experience and transforming your business. Your host, Jason S. Bradshaw, has spent decades helping leaders like you and organizations across the world improve the experience and grow their businesses. Now, over to Jason and this week's guest. Hey, everyone. It's Jason here. What you're listening to today is actually the combination of two separate recordings that I did with Mike just over a year ago, and I've taken the highlights from those recordings to bake it into this 30-minute show for you. Today's guest is Michael, or Mike Usine. He is a director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management at the Wharton School. He holds a PhD from Harvard University, and his research is focused on leadership, decision-making, governance, and corporate change. He is the author of a number of books, his latest book was released just over a year ago called The Edge, and it's an excellent read. Now, I'll leave it there and let you dive straight into this edition of It's All About Experience Management. Mike, welcome to the show. Well, Jason, thank you, and it's a privilege to be here. I look forward to our dialogue. Congratulations on the book, The Edge, How 10 CEOs Learn to Lead and the Lessons for Us All. Now, I've noticed on your website this phrase 10 vivid you are their accounts of chief executive officers who are reinventing leadership providing insight and tools crucial for moving forward in a world turned upside down this sounds like a book everyone should be getting a copy of i certainly am enjoying the read myself but what led you to write the book so jason i think the the history behind the book is very simple my responsibilities and many people's responsibilities include helping others develop their management skill set and their leadership and their strategic thinking going forward. And I think uh, I began to fault myself for teaching a little bit too much about the past. So we look at those who have led last year even, or five years ago, or let's take it before COVID-19, imagine those days and what it took to lead before uh, let's make it March 2020 in just about every country. Leadership now, it's different from what it was then. And uh, if we go back 10 years, leadership now is different from then. And then what worried me, though, is thinking about 10 years from now. Are we going to be bringing into our classroom and programs and podcasts like this ideas that will be relevant for listeners or students 10 years out? So I'd like everybody just to... Imagine for a moment a kind of a thought experiment. Uh, let's make it uh, this date and uh, ten, a decade ahead. What are you going to need that's different then from what is now the conventional wisdom at this point? So to get at that riddle, I decided to look closely at 10 individuals who were themselves changing their own leadership practices to anticipate the future before it swallowed them up. And thus, that's the reference you made to the kind of close-in accounts. In my own experience, I think others learn best by looking at people who've been there, done it, and in this case, were already transforming their leadership. Um, concepts, theories, data all uh, complement uh, what I've just said. 
But at heart, I think we learn most by looking at those who've made a difference in the history of a country, the practices of a hospital, the operations of a military unit, you name it. We need new leadership for it. And the book is intended to identify what is going to be really vital going forward. The 10 leaders that you cover off in the book, they're from every corner of business and society at whole, really. It's it's not a book just for manufacturers or retailers or healthcare professionals. You cover the full gambit of, of industry. And here's why. Uh, again, in my own practice, working with uh, students, many from Australia, from many different kinds of backgrounds, we really have to think about what do leaders, regardless of background or ultimate destination, what are they going to need uh, to set a vision, to think strategically, to communicate persuasively, and thus really important to have examples from outside your own terrain, your own industry, uh, on the premise. And I think it's correct that we often learn more by looking far away from home about what is vital at home. And thus I have, for example, uh, the executive chair and the chief executive of Estee Lauder Companies, one of the world's great fragrance makers, uh, lots of those products in your stores and at the airports uh, when you come into your country. Of course, I have an individual who was a owner of a big sports franchise here, focused in on um, a person, her name is Patricia Griffith, who runs one of America's largest insurance companies. So the 10 people uh, that I profile couldn't be more different, but in their common ground, I think is uh, at least uh, a platform for thinking about your own leadership 10 years out. So what is the edge? Uh, the edge is, uh, glad you asked about that. It's a metaphor. And the phrase itself really comes from a famous American mountaineer named, his name is, colloquial name is Jim Whitaker, James Whitaker, who was the first American to ascend Mount Everest back in 1963. Of course, Tenzing Norgay and Sir Edmund Hillary reached the summit about a decade earlier, the first people ever to reach that summit. But it took about a decade for Americans to pull together an expedition and uh, <laughs> ascend up a lot of edges to reach the summit of Mount Everest as Jim Whitaker did. And he has often said, and we've met him in the Himalayas, we, we, we take some of our students into the Himalayas to think about leadership in that environment for what's going to be relevant back in, let's make an investment banking in New York. And in meeting Jim Whitaker, his final summary uh, farewell to us was this statement. If you're not living on the edge, you're taking up space. It's a metaphor. Uh, it's memorable. And, and that's the basic uh, argument of the book is to move yourself to the edge of what's going to be vital looking ahead. Look over the edge. See what's out there. Easier said, <laughs> either said than done to get it. But the book is intended to show people not only what's going to be vital in years ahead, but how to grab a hold of that and make it work for you now and in the years ahead. The edge. So... Mike, in the book, there's a section that says staying ahead of the game is an in an always on 24-7 world. Yeah. The big question, is that possible? <laughs> well, 
Well, it's required, I think, uh, and I think it is possible. It doesn't mean we're going to work for 24 hours in a row for sure, but it does reference the fact that leadership is is um, it's not a it's not a day job in, in the narrow sense of that phrase, and and we all admire people who are able to go ad- admire the context for people who can leave the office get home, attend a sports or music or whatever else with the family you might want to do. But I think what's happening uh, for people in positions of responsibility, we take an implicit obligation on to, on short notice, face up to problems that, that kind of wash over our shores. And thus, it has, I don't want to overstate this because we, we need a private life. We have to regenerate our energy. Really important to have uh, that kind of partnership in your home, in your home setting with others. But I think the uh, shortening of time cycles, the greater agility, to borrow a well-known phrase there that applies increasingly to business, says we got to be on. And that pretty much means all the time. Now, having said that, don't forget to give yourself and your your the people who report to you a good break. Uh, let them enjoy the weekend if you can. You should enjoy it as well. But uh, problems wash on our shore. And in some days, people in, in high positions will say, my day consists of just solving one big problem, sometimes one big crisis after another. I'm elected to do that. I took an oath of office I would, and I have to follow through 24 by 7. That, that's a great way of looking at it. What's your view on the imperative of inclusion in leadership? Yeah, you know, Jason, a couple of years ago, many academics began to research that topic. And certainly in the last two years, it's become any, a topic of enormous interest to investors, to governing boards to team leaders, uh, to people who are buying products from Amazon, customers as well, for very good reason. And here's how the research evidence goes. Jason, this probably corresponds to your own experience. If we walk into a room and everybody looks like us, sounds like us, why are we in the room with them? It seems like that's a pointless meeting. One chief executive of a very large firm put it exactly that way. When I arrive for, let's say, a product development discussion or a big acquisition. Sometimes this company would get into acquisitions in the many billions of U.S. dollars. Uh, I'm in the room. I'm the CEO. And if somebody thinks like me, uh, we're redundant. I guess we get two votes. But the point is, I want people who think differently. Uh, Their demography is a good sign if we have a good mix of people of different ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, arranged in, in gender preferences. Uh, but that said, the underlying factor requires inclusion to be added to it. So when we have a room with a board with a diverse diversity as just defined, it's a complete waste of their time and pointless for you if you're the chief executive or the board chair, if you don't bring everybody's voice into the room. Some people are more, more naturally introvertish. And uh, one topic I, I spent some time thinking about is corporate governance. And it is unequivocally true, lots of research backs this up, that governing boards, whether of a community center 
or one of Australia's largest firms, let's make it BHP, that if the board is more diverse, decisions are a little bit slower, but the outcome statistically is consistently better. And one argument that fills in the blank there, well, why is that, is this. When people are, are more diverse in who they are, title, region, uh, their ethnic background, maybe their national background, have they worked a lot outside of the home country, is that people prepare a little bit better for the room. They sit forward in their chair, a la a certain uh, number two at, uh, at Facebook. Sheryl Sandberg has got the famous title of the famous book, Lean In. And if you get more people who are not like you in the room, everybody leans in a little bit more to hear what they're thinking. They prepare a little bit more. And as a result, uh, if we can get one or two more percent, we've, we're having a great year if we're a governing board, making trying to make certain that a company delivers great, uh, great value, great shareholder value at the end of the year if they're publicly traded. So DEI, diversity, I for inclusion, and then there's a whole equity argument. So the phrase I think fully put might even need a J at the end, diversity, inclusion, equity, the E, and the day, the J is for justice. It works. Aspiring leaders, you know, listening to, to this show, uh, people from all different backgrounds, what, what's the one tip that you would give to someone that's aspiring to be a leader you know, it's a really good question, and I'm often asked exactly that question for good reason. Uh, life is short. We need leadership, whether it's political or military or community or health or business. And uh, the complaint I hear the world around, I've traveled a lot, is uh, this country or this industry needs more leadership than we have. Sometimes that's an overstated statement, but I think it, it does point to the fact that leadership is tough to acquire. In my view, nobody is a natural born leader. Some had a head start, maybe most famously Nelson Mandela, who just seemed a natural uh, and kept the vision despite 27 years in prison. Uh, one of the articles of anybody's leadership is a commitment to an ultimate purpose and vision, of course. And he seemed to have that just uh, almost naturally. That said, in our view, most people don't get a kind of a head start in any way. And then it becomes a matter of understanding your, your own pathways to becoming a more effective leader. That leads then to just one point. I'm going to end on this in response to your query here. I'm going to reference a, actually a great book by one of my professional colleagues. She's on the faculty at the London Business School. Ermina Ibarra is her name. I've got her cited in the book, of course. And she says that the first step to becoming an effective leader, whatever you're calling, is to decide you're going to make a difference in the lives of others. That's your decision. Nobody else can make it. But once you make it, then that leads you to go into, say, a training program or to take a swing at a startup where you have to learn leadership if you're going to start up anything. And with that, then people come to look at you as a person who's making a difference in their lives and maybe making a difference in far more. And they give you then an opportunity to further strengthen your, your leadership because they want to work with you. They want to join your enterprise. So the first, maybe the, the, the article of incorporation 
is taking on this as an academic phrase, a personal identity as a person who makes a difference. It doesn't tell you how to do it, but if you don't have that to begin with, uh, it is much tougher to get going. So first step, decide you're gonna make a difference. I absolutely love that. It's a, a, a very intentional focus on making a difference to, to the people that you have the privilege to lead. So what will be essential for leadership in the years ahead, do you think? So let me take an example to make the point by referencing Patricia Griffith. She's known as Tricia Griffith, Chief Executive Officer of Progressive Insurance, a huge U.S.-based insurance company, uh, auto insurance, scooter insurance, motorcycle insurance, boat insurance. She sells it. She's got 40,000 people working with her to provide it and then to help out people who get in trouble with a car crash, whatever it may be. And she has concluded, I'm in totally the same camp, that the historic concept of the big boss, the emperor, so to speak, the person in the high tower, who by edict can make things happen, whether it was the original Ford Motor Company or in the latter part of the last century, the famous Jack Welsh at GE, General Electric. Um, I met Jack Welsh several times, uh, attended a couple of events where he was a speaker, and boy, he was a prototype, uh, almost a perfect model of the person who would, from on high, give uh, commanding instructions uh, for people to get the job. He had to get buy-in, of course, lots goes with that. He would express his intent. I want the plastics division or the television division that he ran at one point to hit these numbers. And then you guys figure out how to do it. But he was unequivocally demanding of results. So I think that insistence on results is still with us and will be in business, in medicine, you name it. We want results. Um, in fact, I think that's the third item in your uh, your subtitle here. It's Inspire, Engage, and Deliver, I wrote down. <laughs> he, uh, he, like anybody, wants delivery, of course. But now the question is how we're going to get that over the next 10 years. Trisha Griffith concluded that the big boss model, first of all, it wasn't her. And second of all, it didn't describe, she thought, the world that's going to be required. So... For example, I walked through the company with her in conducting research in this, and it struck me as rather odd. She would never take uh, an elevator. She wanted to walk up staircases. I'm thinking, Trisha, why? This is, you've got a big building here. And she said, you know, I meet more people in the staircase who weren't expecting me, and suddenly there they see the CEO, and I say, how's it going? And tell me what's up. And so she has come off the pedestal. She's on the staircase. And to make it a little bit colorful here, she insists on one of America's great holidays, unknown to most countries of the world, but it's called Halloween. The American tradition, this is trick-or-treat, is the slogan that you may have heard. Uh, but the underlying or more important concept, instead of either you get a treat or you, you provide a trick, is to dress up in a costume. Now, I haven't seen a whole lot of people in, in high rank uh, wear a costume to work on a given day, but she came in as uh, Captain Marvel. She insisted her CFO, her head of HR, all the other um, senior people who reported to her to find a costume, whether it's uh, Superwoman or you name it, Superman, and they were going to take the day off from work and simply walk around the facilities. And uh, this is before COVID-19. 
lots of high fives, lots of joking, lots of camaraderie. And it speaks to her tradition, which is manifest in many things she does, of getting off the pedestal. When she speaks, she won't get up on a lectern. She won't stand behind the barrier uh, or anything that separates her from the people. She simply wades into the crowd and says, great to see you. Where are you from? What's going on? Tell me your, your, your concerns at the moment. And maybe just to illustrate it and then sum it up, I've always loved this. She will come to the employees' lunchroom, a rather large facility. This is a 40,000-person firm. And she'll simply spot a table. There's one extra seat. She sits down. Initially, there's a little bit of a gasp as everybody's <laughs> looking at the person that they may have seen from afar. But she is the chief executive of one of the Fortune 500 companies, our, our list of big companies here. And she says, uh, you know, what happened over the weekend and so on. Word gets around that this CEO is approachable at Halloween in the lunchroom. And so when she says, look, this next year, we want 12% growth in uh, our policies written. We want 8% uh, growth in our assets that we manage until we pay them out. People think, okay, I've had lunch with her and I know what she wants. And I've seen her up close. And so there's a salute. She uh, gets the results. And one, res one outcome of what I've just described, which is probably what uh, took my attention in her direction, our Fortune magazine, one of America's uh, well-known publications uh, on business, features every year the CEO of the year. And the caption said on the front cover, Tricia Griffith, CEO of Progressive Insurance, a company many of you have never heard of, has performance that has outdone Apple and Google. And therefore, she is the CEO of the year. And what goes into that is not leadership of yesteryear, but a modern method that says underneath it, the assumption is totally correct in my view, is that employees these days want to be more personal. They want to bring some of their concerns at home to work, or these days they bring work to home. And she wants to create an environment where she responds to that, gives everybody the best of that. And I think the proof here is in the, uh, in the delivery. She has managed to grow this company more than some of the amazing growth companies like Apple have been able to deliver. So get off the pedestal, get down, have lunch with your employees. I love the connection element that she's going for with her team members. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm wondering from your view, Mike, what has the pandemic taught us about leadership and, and managing through a crisis? Well, Jason, number one, it has taught, taught us that leadership and its impact is enormous. There's a theory out there, and it's in, the, I think, the, the, the common mind. I shared it for a while. How much difference can one person really make? Let's make it a, a commander on an aircraft carrier. That's a rather large ship. American carriers have about 4,000 sailors on board. Uh, that baby is tough to turn. And thus, can one person, a, a commanding officer or a, an executive or a manager like, like so many people probably connected with, connecting with this program, can you really make that much difference? I won't go through the academic evidence, but there's plenty that you, one person, 
can make a difference. And it's not a 2% difference. Uh, I like your 1%, by the way, difference uh, for sure. Uh, but on average, if you bring the right skill set, and it has to be modernized, has to be current, it has to speak to 2030 and not just 2010, uh, you can make up to 30% difference. And here's, by the way, uh, the statistic that really stunned me when I saw it. Somebody, technical academic approach to this, looked at how much difference can a general manager of a sports team make on the final score in a given game or over a season. So the research does not include cricket, I'm uh, regretful <laughs> to say, but it does include American-style football, National Basketball Association teams. And the finding there, stunning, is the same as in business. One person, a general manager, a coach, if they bring the right skill set that's current, can make as much as 30% difference in the bottom line scores, one ver wins versus losses within one to three years. That got my attention. And Jason, partly for that reason, it's got the attention of my school. We now require along with finance and strategy and marketing and operations, students to pass a course in leadership. Can't graduate without a course taken and passed. Why is that? Strategy makes a difference. Marketing makes a difference. So does leadership, and it's on the same scale. I think from my own personal experience, you don't have to be the CEO to make a big impact on a business. Absolutely. In fact, that's really the, the most vital point of all. We all lead in our own world. The research tends to be done on coaches and general managers and, and top executives. But the finding applies, I think, almost universally. So let's, let's suppose we're responsible for an... Uh, an ICU floor at a hospital. So we are the maybe the nurse in charge. Are we going to make a difference in the lives of others? You bet. And the impact, therefore, calls upon us if we want to stay with that formula, make a difference, identify yourself as a person who makes a difference, then we got to get what is required. And that's where this book comes in because it is an effort on my part to help people that want to make a difference going forward, figure out how to indeed make that difference when the era is not the same as it was 10 years ago. I, I think there's just so much in the book that we could, that we could go deep on. One of the areas that in the book that I thought was very interesting, it's titled Reinventing the Culture. How, how important is culture to the success of a leader, to the success of the organization? Well, you know, in the early days of a startup, um, the value is zero. And um, Jason, I know you've been through that. Uh, many of the consumers, your podcast here probably as well. And you know that. I don't even have to say that. It was you, maybe two other people. Uh, but as you move beyond some undefinable number, maybe 20, maybe 50, maybe 100, maybe 300, you as the entrepreneur can no longer have direct contact with most of the people. And the example I draw out in the, in the book is that of a person named Alex Gorsky, who began at Johnson & Johnson, one of America's great pharma companies involved now, everybody knows this, uh, with the distribution of its own vaccine for COVID-19. 
He began at rung number one at the very bottom. He literally oversaw nobody. He was a, a, a salesperson going to meet surgeons, suggesting they think about J&J products. But over not so many years, he rose up, and today he presides over a company that's close to 140,000 people in consumer products, in medical products, and now in vaccines. They developed one for Ebola, and now they have one that is proving successful on the market for COVID-19. But he still is the leader. So he wants people like us all to get the job done to serve consumers in the best possible way. And in this case, uh, patients can't do it hand, uh, hand on hand or these days elbow bumping because we can't shake hands usually. <laughs> Got a mask on. So he has inherited an amazing tradition at Johnson & Johnson of uh, what they call the credo, C-R-E-D-O, the credo. It's a 300-word statement that lays out the purpose and the values of Johnson & Johnson. And he has doubled down on that, knowing full well that in leading that many people, a larger firm, uh, the look in the eye, the employee luncheon room is just not going to get him in, in front of enough of the people. So he's doubled down on the culture, the credo, and he says this, we all got to know it. He just modernized it, again, bringing it into the present, getting rid of the baggage of older language and sometimes even inappropriate language for the current era. And it took a couple of years to do that, but he has taken the view, and I've seen it up close many times within the company, that the culture is that invisible medium that we kind of swim through almost like fish without realizing we're in water. But the credo is posted on everybody's wall. It's in the headquarters in, in, in marble. And it is a, a defining way of, of his leading people that he can't directly have contact with. But the credo does work to uh, pull them in the same direction. It's almost like a magnetic force. Mm -hmm. So, and I offer that up by way of saying for you too, if you are beyond that pure startup stage with yourself uh, and a couple other people, Travis Kalanick, uh, when he got Uber going, was just himself and a couple other people. Uh, but now Uber, a huge company, uh, it spends a lot of time on, on its culture, its precepts. Uh, the new CEO that replaced uh, Travis Kalanick a couple of years ago has said, look, I've got people in... Uh, in London, uh, who I'm not going to meet, but I want them to understand what Uber stands for and the culture is what does that. I absolutely love it. So, Mike, uh, what's the best way for people to stay in touch with your thought leadership and, of course, get a copy of this book and others? So I'm going to offer two avenues here for achieving what you've just asked me to reference here. Uh, the book is available through all the usual online book distributors, so you know where to find those and how to get them. Uh, Jason, at the outset, I think you referenced a, a website. It's just MikeUseem.com. Uh, so, Jason, let me just add another line of thought here. Sure. It's really important, in my view, for ideas to take life to become a persuasive part of the back of your head. You're about to go into a meeting. Don't forget to reference strategy. Don't forget to honor the people in the room. And to that end, I'll encourage people who are listening to this particular podcast. Uh, I've got an open email inbox. Uh, 
And so I'm going to briefly reference my last name is U-S-E-E-M at Wharton, W-H-A-R-T-O-N dot U-P-E-N, U-P-E-N-N dot E-D-U. That's me. Send me a message. I'll be happy to respond with uh, some thoughts if you got a question. So sorry to get kind of boring with that email address thing, but there it is. And I think it's on your website as well. Thanks so much, Mike, for being part of the show. I really appreciate your time. And for our listeners, don't forget to check out the latest book by Mike Yusim, The Edge. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. And don't forget to check out any bonus content mentioned in today's episode at allaboutxm.com. You can find more information about Jason at jasonsbradshaw.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.